How difficult is it to distinguish a priceless treasure from junk? It's more difficult than you might think. Uh, for instance, this painting uh, that you see on the screen uh, was donated to a Goodwill thrift shop in uh, Maryland last March. And uh, there happened to be an, an employee there who recognized this as a painting from the uh, Impressionist artist uh, Edouard Leon Cortez. So this painting, Marche aux Fleurs, or flower shop, <laughs> flower store, flower market I think is the most accurate translation, um, was authenticated and was sold at auction at $40,600. Pretty good for a piece of trash someone gave away. Uh, this picture here, if you are uh, schooled in art, is by the famous uh, Rembrandt. It's a self-portrait in 1628. Uh, he painted this. And uh, it was a praise. Someone found this uh, portrait here and was assumed to be a knockoff. You know, that someone kind of did his version of Rembrandt's self-portrait. And uh, it was auctioned off. The, the, the painting that was presumed to be a knockoff were $3,100. Uh, but then an anonymous uh, Brit paid $4.5 million for it. Turns out that was a good call because the painting was later authenticated as genuine and now has an estimated worth somewhere between 30 and $40 million. In uh, 2006, uh, a couple of brothers discovered Norman Rockwell's painting title breaking from home ties was hidden in their father's home inside a wall. But on the wall, uh, there was a painting that they presumed that their father had drawn that looked just like that. And behind uh, that painting, if you would you go down into the wall, uh, they found uh, the, the painting that was presumed to be uh, the, the genuine article. Uh, here we see uh, the, the painting on the Saturday Evening Post in 1954. And uh, later on that year, in 2006, uh, the painting sold for $15.4 million. Uh, just think of all of these priceless treasures that were presumed to be junk, things you throw away. Now, what do all these stories have in common? Well, in each case, a priceless masterpiece was mistaken as worthless junk. However, someone recognized the value of each piece and benefited from it uh, tremendously. Now, in today's Bible story, we see that the most valued of all things, that which should be regarded as having first place in the hearts of everyone, was treated as junk, something to be tossed away. So we're going to read the story in just a minute, but before we do, I want you to be aware of two or three things uh, that, should, that I want you to keep in the back of your mind that we're going to bring out 
later on as we get deeper into the scripture. First thing I want you to remember is that Galilee is part of the old northern kingdom. You know, after Solomon died, uh, the kingdom split. So you had the southern kingdom and uh, Rehoboam was the king of the southern kingdom and Jeroboam was king of the northern kingdom. Um, a little more history about each kingdom. From time to time, the southern kingdom would have godly men as kings, but the northern kingdom never did. There were times that uh, some people in the northern kingdom uh, would turn to the Lord, but for the most part, uh, they were idolatrous and uh, did not uh, worship the Lord didn't see any need to come to the temple in Jerusalem for that, so they, they set up their own place of worship in Samaria. Uh, that's one thing I want to remember, is that Galilee used to be part of the old northern kingdom. The, the other thing that I want you to remember, uh, as we read this account from Luke 4, uh, Jesus is going to be quoting from the book of Isaiah. And he's going to be referring to captivity, of Israel coming out of captivity, out of bondage. Uh, so what, what bondage was he speaking of? Uh, what captivity? Was he talking about Egypt when the people of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians after Pharaoh forgot about Joseph? And uh, then they came into the promised land. Uh, you know, Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years after that that Jesus is... Uh, or Isaiah is, is not referring to Egyptian captivity, rather he's referring to Babylonian captivity when the people of Israel were carried away uh, to Babylon and they spent some 70 years there before they came home. And so Jesus is quoting a passage uh, from Isaiah and that's going to be referring to um, this deliverance from captivity and Babylon. And something else that's connected to that is uh, when Jesus talks about the uh, release from captivity, he's talking about the year of Jubilee. In the uh, Israeli economy, uh, the number seven was of prime importance, of course, for seven days in a week. And the seventh day was a Sabbath day. And uh, also uh, there were, uh, we'll just go ahead and skip ahead, uh, every uh, seven sets of seven years on the 50th year, it was a year of jubilee, meaning that uh, anyone who was an indentured servant or a slave would be freed from that captivity or that bondage. All debts were forgiven and all lands uh, were returned to the original families. So uh, keep that in mind as we uh, read about uh, what's what Jesus is going to be quoting. One, one more thing I, I, I will mention is, uh, you know, there was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom, and there never was a time when Israel was united, uh, where there was one king who was going to be sitting on that throne. But as uh, we read the story, what I want you to kind of bring into the text is the realization of what Jesus is saying when he quotes from Isaiah the prophet about uh, release from captivity and everything that's connected with that. And uh, then the, the, the realization that they always had to deal with was that uh, the, the kingdoms were divided. They did not have 
um, you know, one king over the whole nation anymore. And Jesus is going to be saying when he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he is saying, I am that king. I am the rightful king of all of Israel. Now, with these things in mind, uh, I want us to go to the, the text. Uh, I think it's on page 859 in your pew Bible if you want to follow me with me. Um, otherwise, we'll look at uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And uh, as was the custom in uh, the first century, uh, well, and even before that, as, as was the custom in, in the synagogue, uh, the people would stand uh, while the reader would read the scripture. So let's do that. Would you, would you stand as we hear the word read? Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath, and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the land of Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all this in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. After about a year of ministering in other parts of Israel, Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he is there going to speak to the people that he grew up worshiping with. 
And uh, just to kind of clue you a little bit on how the order of service went in a synagogue, that we began with the Shema, Hear all real Israel, the Lord thy God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there will be a reading from the law, a reading from the prophets. And then after the reading of the scriptures, uh, they would have a preacher, um, could be any number of preachers. In fact, sometimes they would have as many as seven sermons on a Sabbath. But the preacher would come after the reading of the scripture, he would sit down and uh, teach from the chair. So... Jesus reads from the book of Isaiah. He sits down. Now, there is a little bit of debate uh, among scholarship as to whether Jesus chose his passage himself or whether he was following the, the, the lectionary. The, the, the Jews had uh, a lectionary, meaning that uh, there were certain sections of Scripture that were designated to be read in the future, uh, months ahead, years ahead. I kind of like to believe it was that way, that this text had already been selected, had been pre-selected years ago. And now Jesus comes and reads it, and he says, Today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Now, how impactful would that be? So, when Jesus says... uh, Uh, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Don't you think he had the full attention of everyone who was in attendance? Uh, So after they are stunned, Jesus says something that caused the wheels to come off the train. He says something that causes all the people who are there to reject this claim of Jesus that These scriptures are fulfilled today in their hearing, meaning, of course, they were saying that we reject you as the one who has been sent, uh, the Messiah. And uh, not only do they say, we don't want to listen to you anymore, uh, we want to be done with you. So, you know, I've had people get up and walk out in the middle of a service uh, not because they had to, you know, take care of a, of a personal need, but because they were upset with something I, I, I said. But I've never had the experience of the whole congregation rising up and coming up and taking hold of me and leading me out to a cliff somewhere to throw me off. Uh, you know, that had to be one interesting church service. What happened in church today? Uh, well, you'd really have a story to tell them. But what I want us to see is that the people of the synagogue, the people who knew Jesus when he was just a boy growing up, the people who were familiar with his work, and when he comes in and says that he is the fulfillment of all that they have been reading from the Word of God, rather than acknowledging that he is the Messiah, that he is above all, that he is first, uh, they decide that he's not even on the list. They've got to take him out and get rid of him. So that raises the question, which the text answers. The question is, why do religious people reject Jesus? Why do they not make Christ first in their worship, first in their word ministries, first in their relationships? 
Well, we're going to see the answers here in our text. And uh, I want to point out uh, two big reasons why religious people do not make Christ first in their lives. Reason number one. You will not make Christ first if you do not believe Jesus is who he says he is. The religious people in Nazareth were impressed with Jesus as a preacher. Uh, they marveled at the gracious words that came from his mouth. I mean, wouldn't you love to hear the Lord Jesus come and speak uh, in church? Uh, they, they marvel at his oratory skills. They just don't believe that he is who he claims he is. And some of the people in the congregation started to wonder about Jesus as uh, he goes on in his sermon. And they're thinking, hey, wait a minute. They might, might not have said hey, uh, but they're thinking, uh, we know this guy. He grew up with us. How can he be the Messiah? Is not this Joseph's son? You know, he's, he's one of us. So, you know, anybody can say that he's the Messiah. You know, words can be awfully cheap. Uh, what they needed, though, was proof. And so, as we read the text, it's as though Jesus is reading their minds. And he says this, uh, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. And he goes on to say, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Well, the, the term physician heal thyself is an old expression. And uh, basically what it means is that if, if you make some kind of claim about yourself, then it ought to show up in your life. Or the, the evidence of this claim uh, should be evident to all. Uh, so if you claim to be a physician, uh, if you're a good physician, you want to be able to heal yourself. So if you're walking around sick and claim to be a physician, we're not sure that you're really a, a very good physician. So uh, essentially what the people are doing is they're saying that we, we have our doubts uh, about Jesus. We, we don't see any proof. And the proof that they were looking for was miracles. You know, uh, Capernaum, which wasn't all that far away, about 20 miles, uh, Jesus had done a lot of miracles there. And you know how it is with towns that are pretty close together, there's a rivalry. And it would be like saying, uh, well, we, we heard Jesus was doing miracles over in Mattoon. If he can do them in Mattoon, why can't he come back to his hometown of Charleston and do them here? So they had their doubts about Jesus. You understand uh, that they're not going to be easily persuaded. Um, so rather than perform miracles for them to wow them, uh, Jesus says something, and this is the thing that caused the wheels to come off the train. He said, in so many words, uh, there were a couple of prophets who prophesied in these parts, Elijah and Elisha. Sometimes we get those two prophets mixed up and we're not sure which one is which. So we just kind of slur the words and say Elijah. And that way, uh, nobody knows that you don't know which one you're talking about. Uh, but Jesus says Elijah and, and Elisha. And uh, concerning e Elijah, 
uh, he says, no, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but Elijah didn't go to any of the widows to minister to them. Uh, he went to this certain widow at Zarephath, which was in Sidon, which was Philistine territory. And we all remember uh, the stories of, you know, David and the Philistines. The Philistines were the nemesis of the Israelites. And uh, Elijah uh, is sent by God to minister to this woman in Philistine country, and he raises her son from the dead. Now, there would have been a lot of good Jewish widows in Israel whose sons had died and who certainly could have benefited from a resurrection, but Elijah did not go to any of them. And then he talks about Elisha. Elisha... Uh, lived in those parts also, and there were a lot of lepers in the land of Israel at the time. But Elisha did not go to any of them. Instead, he healed Naaman, who was an officer in the Syrian army. He cleansed him of his leprosy. And we all know that the uh, Israel and Syria are big rivals uh, even today. And uh, so we ask, what point is Jesus making? Here's what he's saying is, you know why a Phoenician woman's son was raised from the dead? You know why a Syrian captain of the army was cleansed of his leprosy? You want to know why? It's because those people believed and the Israelites did not believe. And this applies to you. You do not believe who I am. They didn't. Uh, in fact, uh, I want to highlight this part of the verse. Uh, the people there at uh, Nazareth said, we have heard what you did at Capernaum. Doesn't say that they accepted what he did as reality. Uh, they're not confirming that. They're just saying, hearsay is, these, these are the things that, that, that we hear. So, it is important for us to understand that if you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you don't believe that his word is enough, and if you had to have a miracle uh, in order to, to convince you, um, then you're not going to believe no matter what. So guess what? You know, essentially, here's what Jesus is saying that God is going to treat you like he treated unbelieving, your unbelieving ancestors. He's not going to give you miracles because you have hard hearts. You're steeped in your sins and you won't believe my word. You know what Jesus is doing is that he is uncovering their hearts. That's a scary thing to do when you come into church and you worship and in the context of scriptures being read and... Uh, uh, you dig into it deeper, and, and as we do, we see the hearts of other people exposed, that the same Holy Spirit comes and begins to expose our own hearts. And when our hearts are exposed, we feel vulnerable. We want to protect ourselves. And that's what we see the people of Nazareth doing, which we'll get to in uh, just, uh, just a minute. But first, I want to go to the second reason why people do not make Christ first it's because they do not want to admit their sinful, desperate condition. You know, their hearts have been uh, exposed, and uh, they feel vulnerable, 
They don't want to make Christ first because they're too proud to admit that they are sinners. They're good people. I mean, they're God's people. They're Jews, the, the chosen people, not pagan sinners. Didn't the fact that they were in the synagogue, that they were in public worship that day, prove that they were good people? And then comes this young whippersnapper who implies that God's message is for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the downtrodden. Well, they had more self-respect than to be seen as somebody like that. And Jesus goes even farther and implies that he is going to take God's blessings to the Gentiles of all the nerve. After all we did for him when he was a kid in our youth groups and you know we assisted him. And all that we did for him while he's growing up and he comes back and talks like this. He's just a kid from Nazareth. He's, he's nothing special. Of course, the irony is that even though they saw themselves as basically good people, good religious people, they got angry at Jesus' convicting message, so angry that they left the service in a rage with the intent of killing him. And now the question pops up. Why did Jesus let them do that? Why did he allow them to come and take him and march him all the way to the edge of the cliff before he uh, either miraculously or some other way, you know, walks away? Why did he do that? See, everything Jesus is doing with the Nazarenes is exposing their hearts. He does it through, through the word, uh, through the prophet uh, Isaiah. He shows how all scripture, this one in particular, is pointing to him and exposing their, their hearts, um, revealing to them that they really do need um, release from captivity. And then when the Nazarenes lead him to the edge of the cliff, it's perfectly clear that what is in their hearts, it's murder. So when Jesus makes his way out from them, those people should have come to the realization that, you know something, maybe we're not basically good people after all. Maybe if murder is in our hearts, maybe other sins are there too. Maybe we are missing the point of what scripture says. Well, what happened? Instead of being convicted of their sins that Jesus had uncovered through these stories about Elijah and Elisha, they uh, decide to protect themselves. You know, they're not going to admit that their hearts are filled with sin, like murder. Uh, they're not going to grapple with their unbelief and they're not going to repent of their sin. They're not going to allow the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to show them what they are really like. Oh no, they're going to get rid of the problem. 
And the problem is not their sin. The problem is the one who is exposing their hearts. The problem is Jesus. We're not going to have this, they say. So they all get up and take hold of him and with the intent of throwing him off the cliff. Do we identify with people in the synagogue in Nazareth? Yeah, no, we'd never do anything like that. But if Jesus is meddling in your heart and showing you your sin and you reject his conviction, and, you know, uh, none of us are really any better than those people in Nazareth because it's the heart. Now, some people are committed to acting as though they are free when they know that they're not. And so they're ready to kill people who tell them that they're not free. That's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened to the prophets who came before him. It wasn't until, I guess about now, I realized, man, what a dangerous job I've got. Uh, to be a, a, a representative of God and to expose our hearts, mine included. When, when hearts are exposed, uh, man, anything could happen. You, you could have something happen like what happened to Jesus where people are trying to protect, they're, they're, they're trying to cover themselves with pretense or playing games or something. But also when hearts were exposed, there's a, there, there is a, a possibility there of the heart of stone being taken out and the heart of flesh being put in its place. So anything could happen. We could have a riot or a revival here. <laughs> uh, either way, there's biblical precedent you know, for, for, for both. But I think what the passage is getting at here is that if, if we play games, if we pretend uh, that we've got it all together when we don't, and we pretend that we, we really don't need this message of grace because we're basically good people, let's talk about the, the message that Jesus came to bring. I mean, the, the gospel, the, the message of grace. Does Jesus come and say, I came so that people could continue to paper over their sins and look good. Is that what he says? Does Jesus say, I have good news for you. Straighten up and act right. Is that the message? No. The good news is not, you are sinning, now stop it. The good news is not, Hey, here's a list of things that list of things that you need to do in order to get yourself right with God. That's not the good news. You want to know what the good news is? Here it is. That he who knew no sin became sin so that you might know the righteousness of God in him. At the right time while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So let's not play games with our sins. 
Let's not hide behind appearances or pretend that we have it all together. What we need more than hypocrisy to, to cover us is blood. Jesus says, I have come to shed it for your sake. And that, my friends, is the message that made the people in the synagogue in Nazareth hate him. You know, they not only refused to make Christ first, they, ref they just wanted to do away with him altogether, throw him off the side of the cliff and kill him. And why did they want to do that? They could not bear the shame and the humiliation of admitting what they were, what they needed, and what he was so ready to give. You know, there are two persuasive voices that are calling out to you right now to make them first in your life. There is the voice of Christ who is calling out to you to make him first. And there is the voice of hypocrisy. To listen to one voice, you must utterly reject the other. See, with Jesus, there is no neutrality. If he does not have first place in your life, he doesn't have any place. He's not in your life at all. It's either Christ first or Christ not at all. It's not Christ second, third, fourth, somewhere along the line, all or nothing. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, uh, he says, you know, speaking of Jesus, he came into his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave, even to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the power to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, if you receive Christ, he gives you the power, the authority, the right to become a child of God. Sometimes we use the term accept Christ. Uh, the term accept is, uh, it, it's too close to sounding like toleration. You know, we, we, we accept him, don't really want him, but you know, we, we accept him. But, but to receive is more of an open embrace to Receive Christ. You embrace him because you love him, because of what he's done for you. You know, it's interesting when uh, Jesus read the, the scriptures from prophet Isaiah, chapter 61 and verse 2. Uh, he, he has sent me, speaking of God, to proclaim the year of the Lord, of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. But when Jesus quotes that, he only quotes the first part. He leaves out the part highlighted in blue. Why does he leave out the part about the day of vengeance? Because what Jesus is emphasizing is this. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the time that the year of Jubilee takes place. Today, this season is the time when God has come to make all things right. 
He has come to bring freedom to slaves, to set free those who were in captivity. Uh, to, he, he, he comes to re- return what rightfully belonged to, to one family that had been lost uh, over a, a period of years. He's come to restore all things. He's come to bring life. The day of vengeance is yet to come uh, because there is a day, a day that has been appointed where you know, Jesus will judge the quick and the dead or that is the, the, those who are, are alive and have died. And, and here's how it works, folks. When, uh, when we open the scriptures, when, when we read it, when we hear it being spoken to us, we have opportunity to respond but if we respond by you know closing our ears or closing our eyes to what is being presented to us then there is a a callousing of the heart and every time there is resistance that the callousing uh, gets a, a, a little thicker uh, to the point where uh, it, the, the word of the Lord just bounces off But today is the day of salvation, meaning that the opportunity to receive Christ, the opportunity to make Christ first in your life, the opportunity, I mean this, in a metaphorical way, in a symbolic way, this is an opportunity to take off your mask. Now, not talking about the physical mask that you're wearing, but the mask that is associated with hypocrisy, uh, to be real before God, to admit that you're not as good a person as you would like others to think, and you really do need him. Now, I want to close up just by acknowledging what Jesus came to do. Now, this text, it... Uh, the story of Jesus coming to his hometown and speaking it in the synagogue there and uh, reading the, the scroll from Isaiah and saying today this, uh, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, here, here's what Jesus is, is saying. He has come to expose the sin in our hearts. He has come to set us free from the captivity of sin. He's come to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we might be free from the bondage of sin. Remember they led him to the edge of the cliff indicating that the, the, the reaction to him would be uh, to, to put him to death. But he came to set all things right. The end of the story also uh, re- reminds us that Jesus would be rejected by his own people and uh, he would be, uh, or they would demand uh, that, that he die. And at the appointed time, Jesus would lay down his life. That time where we're reading now has not come yet, but the time, is, the time has been appointed for him to lay down his life so that you and I could be free. All of this would take place in the year of Jubilee. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he relieves us of all spiritual debts and our slavery to sin. We are freed from both and can commune with our heavenly family. Hallelujah, 
What a Savior. Christ is King. Christ is Lord. Christ above all. Christ first. Let us pray. Gracious Father, to be aware that you sent your Son as he came to his own and his own received him not, um, in large part because of what he said uh, concerning uh, Elisha and Elijah going to outsiders, uh, going to Gentiles, indicating that you were going to be reaching out to us who did not have a covenant with you. Uh, and you're still doing that. You're reaching out to those who are lost, to those who are confused, uh, to those who are just unaware of why you came. Will you make us aware that you came to seek and to save the lost you have drawn us to yourself. You have opened our eyes so that we might see our own hearts as they are exposed and we might see uh, that you are coming to take away the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. So for any who have stony or calloused hard hearts, we pray that the words of your prophet spoken by your son and listened to us by this day may be changed forever, that you may be first in our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen.